His latest book, The Bus on Jaffa Road, chronicles a single act of terrorism and what happened as the families of the victims attempted to seek justice. Folks, I'm talking with Mike Kelly this morning. Um, Mike uh, has just launched a uh, very troublesome book, but a very well-written book um, about Middle East terrorism. Uh, it's called The Bus on Jaffa Road. And uh, good morning, Mike. How are you today? Good morning, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I'd like to know if you could uh, give us a little thumbnail uh, give us a little sketch of the book, and we'll get into some specifics. But uh, uh, what's the bus on Jaffa Road all about, Mike? The bus on Jaffa Road really begins uh, with some of my work as a journalist, a newspaper columnist here in northern New Jersey, uh, in covering the 9-11 attacks, which were, uh, which, of course, as your listeners know, took place on September 11, 2001. Mm-hmm. And I covered those attacks and covered the aftermath. And after a number of years of doing this, which included traveling all over the world uh, to Southeast Asia, uh, to Iraq, to the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Israel on several occasions, I just felt like I was still skimming the surface. So I decided to go back and look at one act of terrorism and what had happened in the aftermath to the principals involved and including the families of the victims. And so I chose this uh, suicide bus attack in downtown Jerusalem in February 1996, a very consequential uh, act of terrorism from a geopolitical standpoint because it all but obliterated the Oslo Peace Accords, uh, and, and, and the ramifications of that are still with us today as we see the uh, conflict still, uh, still raging between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But in, the, in that particular bombing on, on Jaffa Road uh, on, in Jerusalem on February uh, 25th, 1996, there were two Americans who were killed, two young lovers, a boy and a girl. Uh, they were thinking about getting married, and on that particular day, they, they were both studying in Jerusalem. He was studying to be a rabbi. Uh, the girl was studying to be a research scientist. They decided to take a break from their studies, and they wanted to take a bus to see an archaeological site. And, of course, they never made it. And the story is about what, not only what happened on that particular day, the bomb plot, uh, uh, and in particular how it was put together by Hamas with, uh, with uh, financial help from the Islamic Republic of Iran and also training for the bomb maker. Uh, but also it traces the families back here in the United States as they try to extract some measure of justice and, indeed, just find out what happened. So that's the center of the story. Yeah, you've uh, you've been doing this kind of reporting for uh, for a few decades, and I have. Uh, what um, what is it about the Islamic movement right now? Uh, what is it that that drove you to write this uh, particular instance? You know. We've been we've been all watching uh, this terrorism for years and years, and it and it's quite overwhelming uh, to look at all the imagery, all, uh, listen to all the sound bites that we get inundated with. I'm glad you wrote this story about a particular incident. Um, it, it must have been tough for you, uh, but it also must have been you know part of the job, right? Well, it was tough. Uh, uh, I. I, I had felt, however, after covering terrorism, 
I mean, I'd written about terrorism before the 9-11 attacks. Mm-hmm. I covered the Pan Am 103 mm-hmm. b- uh, bombing in, in, in the ni- late 1980s and the aftermath of that. But I found that as time went on, Greg, that, that we in the media, uh, we tend to cover terrorism as a matter of body counts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably see this all the time. You know, uh, an act of terrorism will occur somewhere in the world. There will be a news account that says X number of people were killed, then uh, there'll be uh, some mention of some obscure group or sometimes an obscure group that claims responsibility for this particular t- act of terror. And then by the third or fourth paragraph of the news account uh, or early on into the radio or television account of this, there'll be a uh, discussion of what are the political or diplomatic ramifications. And what we lose sight in all of that is that terrorism is personal for those who have lost somebody. Uh, it's a son or a daughter who was killed, mother or father, an aunt and uncle. And for those particular families, they are faced with unbelievable pain, but also an, an, an extremely large number of questions. And those questions are, are not unlike those of any, any typical crime victim. Uh, I've, I've covered my share of crimes as a journalist. And I find that most victims of crimes ask two questions. The first is, who did this to me? It doesn't matter whether your bicycle was stolen or whether something far worse happened to you. You ask, who did this to me? And secondly, what can I do to catch this person and perhaps bring them to justice? Now, in our country, we, when a crime is committed, we, we have a process that, that we can generally turn to. We call the police. If it's a serious matter, prosecutors might get involved, perhaps the FBI. There may be a trial, there may be a conviction, there may be a prison sentence. It's not a perfect system, but I think we all understand that that particular process is in place. When it comes to terrorism, there is no process. There's no agreed-upon methodology by our government for when someone is killed overseas in an act of terrorism that our government will respond in a particular way. And that's what these families faced. They were left pretty much on their own. And, And, yes, the government... Our federal government promised all kinds of help. The FBI promised to jump into the case within days after the bombing. But as my book shows, the FBI never jumped into this case in a very serious way. And in fact, it took them two years to even send a couple of agents to the Middle East to even look at the evidence. Um, And so the families, of course, did not want to give up and let this thing pass. So they were left to do the only thing that they felt they could do, and that was to go to court and file a lawsuit against the Islamic Republic of Iran for financing this bombing. And they won. They won a tremendous amount of money. And then all of a sudden, things changed. After supporting these lawsuits, our federal government said, well, wait a second, now that you've won, we're not going to allow you to collect on them because it might harm our diplomatic relations with Iran. Hmm. And so began a long political battle. And we see some of this, uh, some of the aftermath of this still still with us today. There have been other lawsuits uh, that other victims of terrorism have filed against various governments. Uh, some of the big ones involve the Marines that were killed in 1983 in Beirut. They filed a lawsuit and, and won a $2.8 billion judgment against Iran. They're still trying to collect on that. And just a few weeks ago uh, in in New York, there was another ruling in a federal lawsuit against a Arab bank. And then just last week, uh, some soldiers uh, who had been killed in, in Iraq uh, by terrorists filed lawsuits against a number of banks, including some fairly large Western banks, for funneling terrorist money uh, uh, into the hands of ter- terrorists. 
So these kinds of lawsuits are picking up. What they really show, however, what they really reveal is how our federal government has taken a basic arm's length uh, posture when it comes to terrorism. You know, when it co- terrorism is actually, you know, something that, that uh, has been with us for a while now. And sometimes our government uses the military to respond, and we've seen evidence of that, sometimes effectively and not so effectively. Sometimes we use the FBI or the Justice Department or even the CIA to respond to acts of terrorism. But generally, and, and as I show, in most cases, our government does nothing. Uh, and and it's, left to, it's left to the families themselves to try to figure out what to do, how to hold somebody accountable. And it's an extraordinarily difficult and painful journey that they embark on. Well, I can see, I can see, kind of see why the government would do a hands-off on on uh, on these contemporary acts, uh, um, because I, well, I know in the seventies, um, the United States went over to the big sandbox and we trained uh, and supported and and supplied the Iranians, the Jordanians, the Sudanians, uh, Iraqi uh, pilots. Um, we helped them build, uh, bases. We, we, uh, had these advisors over there training them. I mean, this goes back to the freaking seventies. Okay. So we, earlier than that. yeah, earlier than that. So it, we, it comes to Iran. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So we, we <laughs> decades ago, we, we helped, these countries out. Obviously, there's uh, some sort of resource uh, uh, remuneration factor in there or something. But, uh, you know, we've, we've helped these little nations out. And, damn it, we turn our back and they're against us. I mean, this happens time over time over time. Um, when, <laughs> when are we going to start learning uh, that it, it you know these are cultures these are cultures that have been um ingrained into these populations since for centuries i mean centuries so why are we even attempting to to try to convert these folks i mean why don't we just well, say not. the hell you know why don't we just say the hell with it blow yourself up you know whatever i mean why do why do we keep helping and, and keep getting burnt? Well, uh, there's a couple of issues that you raise there that I think are, are very interesting. First of all, uh, we're not helping these, uh, the terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. Right. We're, not, we're not providing them with military aid. Right. Um, and and uh, have we been involved in, in the Middle East for, for decades? Of course we have. So have many Western countries. Uh, and, and I don't think that's going to change, and probably nor should it change, uh, the Middle East is an enormously complicated place mm-hmm. where all kinds of ancient rules about tribes and religion have, have hold sway, and, and, and in some ways we in the West do not appreciate that. Um, and, and I'm not saying it in a positive sense, but also we don't realize how dangerous it can be as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when an American citizen is killed overseas, I believe, and I think it's a reasonable request on the part of American citizens back home, to ask the federal government to find out what happened. And our government has struggled with this for decades now. And we've, and it's not my book, right, 
my book chronicles how the Clinton administration essentially struggled with this. But this is this goes back to the Carter administration, mm-hmm. the Reagan administration, Bush one, of course the Clintons, Bush two, and and currently with Obama. Uh, we don't seem to have a a a, a ready policy on what to do when this happens. And so we're, we're, caught, we're caught kind of ham-handed. But as these lawsuits have proved, there is a definite, uh, and there's a very organized way that these, uh, methodology that these terrorist acts take place. I mean, I had always thought that suicide bombers were kind of deranged individuals who acted on their own. And what I found out in this case is that that was not the case at all. It's, they're highly sophisticated operations with uh, with between six and eight people involved, uh, with lots of money. And in the case of the, the, the story that I write about, the bomb maker himself was trained in Iran. And how do I know this? Because I interviewed the guy. I actually tracked him down to an Israeli prison. My book begins with that interview and also the epilogue uh, ends with that interview. And it really raises questions about what we're dealing with and how we've been so naive in what we're dealing with. And what I found this bomb maker to be he was a thug. He was a stone cold killer hmm. who had absolutely no remorse, and and, and not a, not a religious zealot, huh? Oh, he claimed to be one, mm-hmm. but you know when I when I challenged him on that, um, he just went back to kind of boilerplate. You know, I'm doing this for God, and et cetera. But I really think that when you really wipe all this away, this is all about criminal uh, behavior. Uh, yes, it's 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 cloaked in, in in a theology, and I'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But but the bottom line here is that terrorism is murder, um, and and yes, it's 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 it, we contextualize it as part of a political and, and diplomatic dispute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, but in the end, when you're murdering innocent people, I don't care whether you're doing it in the name of God or politics or whatever. When innocent people get murdered, that's a war crime. And those things are generally prosecuted as crimes, and that's what our that's what our country has not been doing lately. We've done it a little bit. We've arrested some people and that sort of thing, but by and large, we kind of let these things go by, particularly when it involves the Israelis and the Palestinians, because we just we're so invested in trying to solve the problem over there, we've sort of lost sight of the fact that in some cases that we've become victimized by, uh, and caught in the middle of this terrorism itself. Yeah. I agree. Do you do you think the uh, will ever settle the dispute in the West Bank? I mean, do you, do you think that is ever going to yeah. get settled? No, yeah. I do not. Uh, right. I, I I think it's that. Well, let me put it this way: ever, <laughs> I don't know about ever, but uh, miracles could happen. Mm-hmm. But I I believe that it's at the, it, it, it's worse than ever right now. Um, and, and and this is due largely to the fact that, I mean, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for a number of the issues in the Palestinian cause, mm-hmm. but I draw the line at murder. Mm-hmm. And and one of the issues, having been over there quite a bit and, and reported from there, one of the issues that is a that is a major, major, major problem is, is the violence that is largely... Uh, coming from the Palestinian side, yes, the Israelis have co- have committed their share of atrocities, and 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 by no means are the Israelis uh, perfectly innocent in the way they respond to a lot of these acts of terror. Sure. Uh, sometimes they overdo it and they kill innocent people. However, um, there has the Palestinians have had a a a history of of attacking the Israelis, and this goes back now. We're talking several decades now. And I think because of that, there has, is such a, a level of mistrust that has been created here 
that I do not see any 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 peace deal happening in the near future. It would, it, it, in my view, it's going to take five years of peace just to get that, that, that those kinds of discussions going in a very serious way. And and I and I for one don't believe they'll they'll happen anytime soon because of some of the larger geopolitical issues that are playing out over there, including including the attempt by the Iranians to uh, to build <clears throat> to gain some sort of uh, capacity with nuclear uh, power and possibly nuclear weapons. Yeah. So you, you spent some time over there. You know the culture. You you, you know people. You you know the you know the. Uh, you know the person who lives over there. Why? Why do? Um, why are they staying? Why don't they just leave? Who's this? The, the Israelis. I mean, why? Don't, why don't they just move it? You know. I mean. Well, I mean, that's that, that's highly. Uh, I know it's primary reason they're there is, is, is there's really two two reasons two factors at play here. Number one. Uh, Beginning after World War II and the devastation of the, of the Nazi Holocaust and mm-hmm. the murders of six million Jews, uh, there was a, there was a, a, a hue and cry that was embraced not only within Judaism but also within the Western world to create a sort of safe homeland for Jewish people. Uh, they had just been beaten up too much uh, over over centuries, and the record is clear. That I don't need to go into it. Um, but there's also a spiritual connection to that part of the world on the part of devout Jews that that it cannot be denied. There are theological and deep spiritual and scriptural connections to that land. And um, the, the problem here uh, is that there are other people who live on that land, and that's been the struggle between the Israelis and the Palestinians from almost day one when the nation was founded in 1948, that there that how do you resolve the fact that yes for Jews there is a spiritual connection to that that little corner of the world but there's also other people who live there who do not share that particular uh uh connection that you might feel and how do those people fit into whatever kind of society you're going to create and that is a massive struggle within Israeli society and it's it's in some ways fracturing Israeli society and, and, and forgetting for a moment the Palestinian violence and and the issues there, uh, uh, Israel is, 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 is in some ways at war with itself over, over how to go forward in the future uh, and, and, and still try to hold on to the West Bank, uh, which is really the spiritual homeland of Judaism. That's Judea and Samaria that we all read about in the Bible. That's where it all happened. Uh, and to try to have some sort of uh, freedom of movement within Jerusalem, but at the same time deal with the fact that there are several million other people there, namely the Palestinians, who are not going anywhere soon. Yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of kind of can see it now. Um, we can go back to the 12th and 13th century, you know, following oh, yeah. the Crusades. And, you, know. <laughs> you can go back to the 1st century. <laughs> yeah, 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 well, <laughs> hasn't been too much written about that, but... Uh, well, okay, Mike. So, actually, it's a pretty damn good book. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I like uh, I like nonfiction. I like historical fiction. Um, your book is nonfiction. Uh, yet, right? It, it's a true story. Yeah, but but it's uh, you know it's well written. It was easy to get through. Um, I don't know if it was because I'm interested in this. Uh, um, I don't know. 
I don't know. Well, but, I, 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 let me just say a little bit about that. It, yeah. it, it, I, I deliberately tried to structure the book as a story. Yeah. Uh, and it, there's a narrative story to it, uh, and, and I structured it around a, a series of characters, some of whom uh, readers will recognize, Yasser Arafat and several mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I wanted to also bring it down on a very personal level to the young man and the young woman who were on that bus, Mm-hmm. And and also the young Palestinian man who got on that bus and blew himself up, yeah. uh, and and what kind of journeys they were on. I mean, one of the saddest interviews that, that took place toward the end of the book is when I tracked down the family of that suicide bomber and uh, and went to see them and talked to them about you know all these years later how do they see their son's actions and uh, I won't yeah you talk spoil- you talked to the father and yeah. you you looked in his eyes man and asked them. Why did your son do this? Right, and he couldn't explain it. He said, no, he, that he mu- said, actually said, uh, he said he wished his son had not, and if he knew his son was doing this, he would have tried to stop it. But the saddest part of that interview was when I said, "Well, how do people remember your son now?" Yeah, and he said, and I'm just paraphrasing. He said, "You know, things like that tend to fade into oblivion." Yeah, meaning that you know his son thought he was presumably doing something great, and yet he's been forgotten about. Uh, and and what a sad legacy. See that, that yeah, and that's that's what's really tragic when I look at these young men and women that blow themselves up. I mean, I, right. I, I that is so tragic to 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 look in the eyes of somebody, you know, a young man, a young girl, to see all that pain, all that confusion, all that hurt that they obviously carry around. Um, right. I mean. <laughs> that's what bugs me you know it, it it how can how can a people be so distraught be so hurting that they turn to something like this and th- this is this is a question i'll ask myself till i die um you know i've been in situations where i've had a f- you know fight or flight uh, i've been in those situations i've been i've been threatened i've been i've had you know years of depression and uh, I've gone through all the crap that everybody else in the world goes through. Um, I don't know whether it's me, you know. I don't know whether it's my parents who taught me to give instead of take, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I really think that, uh, you know, unless we unless we start touching the hearts of children, this is going to go on for decades and decades and decades. Well, you ask a really profound question because at the heart of this, I believe, is a theological belief, and it really takes the form of two different, uh, uh, there's two separate elements to this. They're not, they're not completely separate. The first is this belief within radical Islamic, some radical Islamic elements, uh, that you can kill other people in the name of God, uh, and that's okay, because you're killing non-Muslims. And we see this now played out with ISIS beheading uh, journalists and others and, and killing indiscriminately people who do not follow the Muslim faith. Right. But there's another piece of this theology which is deeply disturbing, that you can become a martyr if you kill yourself and, in the process, kill other people. Now, that completely turns on its head the traditional view of martyrdom, martyrdom, which is embraced by not just the Judeo-Christian world, but also Hinduism and Buddhism, etc. And that that sense of martyrdom and that that theological belief that you can kill others in the name of God, 
That has to be confronted within Islam. President Obama has asked at the United Nations just last month that pe- that 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 you know that the Muslim world confronts this. We've heard very little from the Muslim world about this. Uh, Tom Friedman, in a column in the New York Times, just recently raised the question, and he, and he indicated that there are some scholars in in the in the Middle East that are starting to grapple with this. But it's been very slow, and the voices of criticism of this radicalized theology are very faint and very few. And I believe that if this is going to change, it's got to come within within the Muslim world. There's no amount of criticism from the West that's going to stop this. But when the Muslim world takes on this problem, then it will change, and not until then. And that's that's what I believe. Well, I think you're right. And and obviously your book, uh, the bus on Jaffa Road, goes much more deeply than uh, you know the so-called war, war on terrorism uh, theme. Uh, it goes way deeper than uh, just a uh, a news event, and uh, it's a hell of a book. Um, well, thank you. I, I, and you're a very insightful individual. I, I, I really enjoy talking to, to smart uh, uh, guys like you um, who, who get it and uh, have a sense of purpose. You know, you're, obviously you're not writing just for the hell of writing or making money. This is, this is very personal to you. Um, and uh, it's, it was. It's, it's a great, it was. Yeah, it's a great read. Um, hang on after we say goodbye, Mike, if you would. Um, I will. Um, folks, uh, I encourage everybody uh, to buy this book, The Bus on Jaffa Road. Uh, it's a story of Middle East terrorism and the search for justice. It's, uh, it's not a book about an event. It's, uh, it's a book that gets at uh, uh, the nuts and bolts of uh, terrorism and uh, how this one incident was combated. Um, thank you, everybody. Mike, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, um, I'd like to pick this up again maybe uh, maybe next year. And You got anything coming out? You writing any more these days? Uh, no more books. No more books? Not in the near, not the near future. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, but yeah, yeah, I expect to be writing more on this in the future. Oh, great. Uh, but anyway, it's been a pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Okay. Take care. Yep.